Hi, and welcome to the Institute of Performance Nutrition We Do Science podcast. Now, I know some people will be going, hang on, I thought this used to be the Guru Performance Institute. It was, we've rebranded, I'll talk about that another time. But this is now the Institute of Performance Nutrition We Do Science podcast. And uh, amazingly, uh, given I don't pump out loads of episodes, um, hopefully quality over quantity here, um, we are now at episode 121, and my guest today is Dr. Dan Moore. Hey, Dan, how are you doing? Hi, Laurent. Great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. What a great opportunity this no, is. No, it, it, it's awesome to have you on board. And um, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because, as we discussed off air, uh, I've been doing a bit of research for a book chapter I'm doing um, relating to nutrition and endurance athletes. And... Um, in the course of that research, I came across a variety of um, publications and other resources uh, on the topic, and um, some of your work kept coming up. So, of course, I, I read that, and as I said, it's going to be cited. Thank you very much. Um, and some of your, your colleagues, including John Hawley, of course, who we've spoken to numerous times uh, on this podcast, and some of your other co-authors I'll be talking to in the future. But... Um, this is such an interesting topic because when we when we think of the word um, endurance athletes, we don't tend to associate that with things like uh, protein, strength, power. But in particular, protein is is what I want to talk about today because that's almost something that pretty much never gets discussed. In fact, it's it's not only not discussed enough, um, but it's also avoided, uh, particularly by athletes. I work a lot with endurance ultra endurance athletes and boy do they go out of their way to not eat this stuff so we'll get into all of this because one um one thing that you focused on in your work was why dietary protein is important for endurance athletes and that's going to be our our whole conversation but before we get into that um you know not everyone's going to know who you are but they will do at the end of this podcast so maybe you could give us a little little intro as to who Dr. Dan Moore is and, and what you've been doing and where you are now, and, and then we'll get into this. Definitely. Um, so uh, I'm at the Associate Professor at University of Toronto in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education, uh, and my research is in protein metabolism, uh, and we study across the lifespan, uh, children right up to the oldest old, uh, but today we'll be focusing primarily on the work with endurance athletes. Um, that really only came about uh, about five or six years ago. I started to realize um, there is a bit of a void in the, the protein space as far as endurance athletes are concerned. Uh, I did my training uh, under Stu Phillips at McMaster University, and we focused primarily on the interaction between resistance exercise and dietary protein ingestion. And uh, not that I had the blinders on back then, but it was always my focus was, and perception was that, yes, I think it was a common one, that, that protein is for building muscle. And it's for muscle growth. Uh, but really, it's, uh, you know, next to carbohydrate, uh, I think, is probably arguably the most important macronutrient for, for any athlete, especially endurance athletes who put their bodies through a fair amount of stress. And so uh, our research is, in addition to continuing to study uh, interactive effects with resistance exercise, has also started to branch out into the endurance athlete uh, and understanding the, the protein needs for those athletes uh, what impact uh, restricting protein intake might have on performance, uh, and starting to peek in a little bit about what types of protein or 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 
uh, features of protein might be uh, important to consider for the endurance athlete. So uh, we wrote a review on this uh, a few a few years ago now that uh, could probably be updated at the po- at the moment, but uh, happy to to use that as a starting point for our discussions today. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think one thing that's worth getting into here is uh, most of the listeners know I, I like to use the word things like context and relevant a lot. Um, and we do need to contextualize and define a few things just so I think we're all on the same page. But also in, you know, in the interest of, of well, my particular focus here is bridging that gap between what, what we, we know or what we think we know in science and what's actually relevant for practice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's no doubt that there's a lot of work on the topic of, of protein out there, both in sports science, but in the medical literature, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff. And we've had every, I mean, Stu Phillips, Kevin Tipton, even Lee Breen has spoken on here. I've done my best to, to sort of find out from those guys over the years where we are. But as I said earlier, it's always been in the context of sort of, you know, muscle, protein, hypertrophy, getting bigger, stronger. Um, and particularly with Lee's work, or Dr. Breen, I should say, uh, for the listeners' sake, uh, you know, um, we're dealing with how that can be of, of interest and benefit to older populations. Absolutely fascinating how one's needs change as one gets older. And that, of course, might also be relevant to this conversation because if there's one area of sport that's pretty popular with some of the older people is endurance sports, you know, uh, mm-hmm. very interesting. But as far as the body of knowledge is concerned, uh, that's relevant to our conversation today, how, how big a, a gap is there, you think, between what we know about protein and things like hypertrophy, strength and performance, and endurance? Yeah, I think there's a, um, I wouldn't say it's, it's, a, it's a yawning void, uh, but it's it's clearly um, less studied the, um, compared to the literature looking at resistance trained athletes, and I say that because a very nice um, meta analysis uh, by Rob Morton out of Stu Phillips Lab published uh, last year uh, in British Journal of Medical Science, British Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, was able to look at all the studies that that investigated uh, the effects of supplemental protein uh, on the adaptation to resistance training. And from that alone, I think he was able to call about 50 studies and put together a fairly nice dose response that showed quite nicely that muscle growth seems to plateau at about 1.6 grams per kilogram of protein per day. Um, we're nowhere near to being able to put something like this, a meta-analysis of that size together for endurance athletes, and specifically uh, focusing on, on what they're, what they're uh, interested in, and that is performance. Um, you know, having an adequate quantity and quality of muscle mass is definitely important for all athletes. Uh, but, you know, what they're striving to do is, is be the fastest uh, in their discipline. And so uh, we don't have a really good handle on, on um, the impact that, that uh, varying amounts of protein or protein types or timing might have on, on adaptations to endurance training or the ability to perform at a high level in endurance field. Um, and so there is that gap. We're starting to bridge it a little bit with uh, studies, not just by myself, but other labs, looking at uh, the metabolic effects, which we'll probably talk about um, in, in acute settings, so over the course of a, or a day to a week. Um, but as we know, um, you know, peak endurance performance might take you know, four or five years to reach. And so we need to better understand 
the, the metabolic effects of different types of proteins in the acute sense, but then also have those long-term studies to prove that varying this macronutrient actually does play a role in, in adaptation, recovery, and, and performance. So I, when I talk about these things with my guests, um, I, I like to think of things like knowledge um, as tools in a toolbox. And, you know, I, I think there's a, a sort of a, a propensity to have a very black and white view of things, which is not the case in, in the real world, of course. Uh, you know, the, the, in science, you have to control variables and, you know, it's very difficult to understand how something works. And that's all part of the scientific process. But of course, in, in the real world, um, quotes unquote, that you know that there are different considerations that we're going to have for these things which is why i say let's contextualize this let's mm-hmm. um let's talk about whether you know you can do it but is it really relevant um and, and that's where i think there's a, a whole lot of interest in this area for me as someone who does work with endurance athletes um is is the fact that you know, the many uses of, of the tool known as protein in the practitioner's toolbox is it does so much more than what it's labeled for, i.e. muscle, really. So when you start to look at all the things that athletes are trying to do, which is ultimately become better, ultimately, if we want to be simplistic, there's a lot in the process of 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 going from where they are to becoming the best possible athlete that they can. And we'll explore those different sort of avenues here. But I think it is important that we, you know, we, we, we start looking at this in a different way. And that's probably why athletes, coaches, et cetera, have shunned away from protein because it just isn't about adding bulk or, or getting stronger. So if we delve into um, the tool protein in a bit more detail from from the perspective of, of, of both the different areas in which it has a use and maybe some of the mechanisms behind that to help us understand why it can be used in in that way and I think you know I, if what we're using here really is your um, you know your your muscle hypertrophy review paper as a bit of a framework but we'll, we'll jump in and out of different areas here um but the first thing i wanted to get into was something which some listeners would go hey sorry did he just use the phrase protein as a source of fuel but yes Mm. protein can be a source of fuel so maybe you could get into that area first yeah so um obviously uh endurance athletes would want to focus on uh primarily use of carbohydrate for fuel especially if it's a high intensity exercise bout Fat is going to be a close second. And generally, um, amino acid or, or the, the building blocks of protein, uh, its metabolism as a source of fuel is relatively minor compared to those other two macronutrients. So anywhere between about 2 to 5% of our energy uh, at rest and during exercise comes from the deamination and, and oxidation of, uh, of these amino acids. Um, but that, that scales with, with energy expenditure. And so... Uh, someone who, who, is, uh, who is, for example, um, working at around 75% of the VO2 max for about an hour might actually burn through the equivalent of about 12 grams of protein. 
Um, and what we see is that there's a, a subset of amino acids called the branch chain amino acids, leucine, valine, isoleucine, which seem to be preferentially used as a source of fuel during exercise, primarily because they can be used directly within the muscle, uh, the working muscle. And so you have to think that if you're using these as a source of fuel, then they're not available to help you recover when you stop exercising. And so you have to replace them from the diet because they're known as essential amino acids, meaning we can't, we, our body cannot synthesize them and we have to get them through the diet. And so a lot of the, the work that we've done that, that actually show that um, protein requirements are, are elevated in endurance athletes and, and paradoxically as high or perhaps even higher than resistance trained athletes who are looking to build muscle. Um, a lot of this we believe is related to the fact that uh, athletes are using um, these amino acids as fuel during exercise. And so we have to replace them. Um, now where we can get into a situation where those, that use of fuel is, is a, as a source of fuel is increased is during periods of low carbohydrate availability such as when your muscle glycogen is, is low or, or even depleted. And this is something that might occur at the end of a long training session or actually might be periodized into the training, such as low-carbohydrate availability training uh, or fasted training is another kind of uh, term being used. Um, so energy, uh, energy expenditure from protein might actually increase up to 10% in those situations. And so... We have to think about protein as being important to replace uh, an endurance athlete because they're actually using this as a source of fuel. And, and how well they're at, they're, they're, they are at refueling themselves with the other macronutrients, such as carbohydrate, might actually influence how much more protein they might need in their diet. Yeah, and, and there's some bits here I want to dig into um, uh, just so I, we can be absolutely clear what we mean by some of these topics where we're going to go. I, I think it would be helpful here if we, when we're using the term athlete and in the context of the research that was done using the word athletes, what, I mean, what, you know, what does that actually mean in reality? Yeah. So, um, in our work, um, we, we look at athletes as, uh, they usually have a, a fairly high, what we consider high um, VO2, so up around 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute, 60 to 75, or 60 to 70, excuse me. Um, and so that's definitely well above average. They, they, some of them might be considered sub-elite. Um, we don't actually get to research uh, a lot of elite athletes, but these are people that are, that are putting in, um, you know, if, if, they're, if they're running uh, they're, they're logging about 60 to 70 kilometers of, of mileage a week. So definitely more than your, your, uh, your recreational exerciser or, or weekend warrior, as, as I might consider myself. Um, and so we are looking at a fairly trained population. We can see some of these adaptations, though, occur uh, if you take someone who's untrained and, and train them for even, uh, uh, even three months. Uh, but we're, what we're talking about are people who who, uh, who have, uh, uh, who are continuing to train. Um, some of them uh, are varsity athletes at the University of Toronto. So they're, they're still uh, competing at a fairly high level. And others are just those who, who, uh, who've been lifelong exercisers and, and who continue to race, uh, not competitively, but will do your half marathon or marathon uh, sure. type distances. So fa fairly high trained and, and definitely something that, that I would 
to do. Yeah, and it, well, yeah, you and me, but I mean, look, the reason why I'm raising that is because I think it's worth bearing in mind who the, you know, the, 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 the target audience for this knowledge actually is, because the reality is, is, you know, you've got someone doing a 1K jog on a treadmill and they're necking protein um, because of how they've mistranslated this or their trainer or whatever has. So I think that, you know, we'll, we'll get into the mm-hmm. other aspects where you could still argue a case for it in, in a mm-hmm. bit, maybe with older people or people in energy deficits, that sort of thing. Um, yep. But yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think, I think there's a, a strong case for this, but it's probably more along the, uh, the, the, the more, the, the sort of the high end, highly invested athlete in terms of time and effort and intensity of training and so on. Um, but again, I think we should also define what we and by we, I mean, you uh, mean by protein, because again, we're using that word, but it, it does tend to mean different things. And there are arguments about which is better and which is worse, which we will get into. But mm-hmm. when you, when you're, you know, cause amino acids are like, well, I can't buy, you know, um, I can't pick amino acids off a tree or whatever. It's not, you know, so maybe you could define that for us. Yeah. So, so, so protein, um, so how I would define it in, in our lab is, is to your point about, um, uh, the research process and having to have full control over as many variables as possible. Uh, in our lab, uh, some of the studies we've done with, with protein, and I put that in air quotes here is actually done by, um, using crystalline amino acids, so these individual amino acids. Um, and the reason why we, we do that is because we can control um, precisely how much and in what ratio we give these, uh, these amino acids. The body is going to respond to an amino acid in its free form or bound in protein relatively similarly. You have to break down the protein in your digestive system, your stomach and small intestine, to liberate those, those free amino acids. Um, and so we, we just give them directly because we can zero in on exactly how much we're giving. And, and some of the research we're doing looking at protein requirements, uh, we're, we're modeling off of uh, um, egg protein, which is a fairly, it's a gold standard uh, protein as far as providing all the, all the essentials in the right ratios. Um, but, but certainly what we're, we're starting to see a little bit more of, um, is, you know, as you mentioned, we don't, we don't eat free amino acids. Um, and it comes in food forms and, and in addition to that food, it comes in a food matrix. And so maybe we'll get to that point, but we're starting to, to look at the impact of, of the matrix of the food and the, the other, um, uh, micronutrients that might come in that food package. And we're seeing that, um, uh, for example, um, it, whole eggs seem to be better at supporting uh, muscle protein remodeling or muscle protein synthesis than than just merely egg whites. And so there's a lot of you know cholesterol and fats and micronutrients found in egg yolks. And so these these complete food matrices um, that's what we evolved to eat. Uh, and so we're seeing that they might have slightly different benefits. Um, so when we control in a lab, uh, sometimes we use those crystalline amino acids. Otherwise, we, we will use um, whole foods uh, and try and lock in, um, provide a, a blend of proteins from uh, both a plant and, and animal sources uh, to mimic what uh, a, a normal uh, 
let's use air quotes again, uh, Western diet might be. Yeah. And they, you know, just to go back to my whole sort of science to practice thing is, is the reason why I'm mentioning that is because when people read terms like amino acids, branch chain amino acids, protein, you know, what they end up reaching for is a tub of protein powder or a mm -hmm. pack of amino acids when you get all this stuff in food as well. And, and we will get into the value of supplementation in a minute. Mm -hmm. But yep. the reason why it's been sort of zeroed down to those specific terms is because you've had to isolate those to make sure that it is actually those components that did what you're seeing as opposed to you know the uh, the egg yolk as opposed to the egg white for example um correct so so i think this is a good segue then into you know why you know why why should we be talking about this as opposed to just for strength people um and you've already mentioned or both of us have mentioned a few things one of which is this whole idea of energy balance it's incredibly topical or the physique focused people um, to a certain extent, strength and power. For those of us that operate in high performance environments, it's a massive issue, particularly with um, endurance and especially ultra endurance athletes who can barely eat enough food to keep up with demands of their training and the mm -hmm. challenges that also presents out in competition, <coughs> particularly in multi-day stage events, that sort of thing. So that's another chat for another time. But, but, but energy balance um, you know, directly leads us into a lot of interesting work for the value of protein in mm -hmm. a diet. Um, and you talk about this in your paper, you talk about energy balance generally, you talk about negative energy balance and the mm -hmm. reason why protein will have an important role in that. Maybe you could talk about that in the context of, of an athlete. Sure. So um, one, of the, one of the things that athletes would, will, will likely do, especially um, if, if they need high strength to mass or, or have a weight-bearing uh, discipline such as running, is, is to try and lean up before, before a match or, or before a race, uh, be as light as possible. But, but we want to make sure that's not at the expense of, of losing too much muscle mass. Um, but obviously to, to lose that weight, you have to be in a negative energy balance. Uh, sometimes that's also associated with with a with a lower carbohydrate intake, which has implications, as we mentioned, for uh, how much energy might be used, uh, how much protein might be used as a source of energy during those those periods. But what we see is that, um, in generally, any any athlete, uh, and even in in uh, recreational athletes, um, consuming a little bit more protein in your diet actually helps hang on to some of that muscle loss. Or muscle mass during a period of negative energy balance, and so <clears throat> protein um, it might also enhance that that uh, negative balance, negative energy balance through it being uh, the highest uh, having the highest thermic effect. So, meaning your body has to spend the most energy digesting and utilizing protein uh, compared to to, uh, to carbohydrates and fats, and so it might be a tool to help. Uh, reduce the the energy availability. So once you've subtracted the energy you need to digest the food, what's left is what your body has to expend. Um, and so it can be used as a tool to to help facilitate a negative energy balance um, uh, by this increased thermic effect. It's also very satiating too. And so 
Um, you tend to get a little bit hungry if you're, if you're trying to cut weight. And so a higher protein uh, in, in a meal might actually help uh, stave off some of those hunger pains and allow you to, to, uh, to adhere to, to your diets. Um, so in our hands, uh, a slightly higher protein intake than what you would normally get and consume on a, on a uh, energy balanced diet is needed during periods of this, of this weight, uh, purposeful weight loss. So thank you for that. And I, I, this is where it gets really interesting, particularly where um, we're generalizing a bit. And what we're trying to do as practitioners is be a little bit more specific. And this is where I think um, this is particularly important because when we're trying to achieve um, an energy deficit to, you know, achieve um, a body composition change that we perceive um, as being um, having a positive effect on performance, i.e., you know, getting rid of any uh, unnecessary body fat, uh, but not at the expense of losing the the machinery, the muscle mass, etc. Or stuff we'll get into in a bit. You know, further problems that that may lead to in extremes such as impacts on immune system, bone health, that sort of thing. But when we're trying to get that, that, that balance right, there is also a propensity for those that are uh, taking on board this need for protein possibly too far as well, because that could be at the expense of adequate carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? We will get into specifics a bit later, but, but that particular concept, what are your thoughts? I think that's a great point. Um, and we spoke earlier about uh, the work that James Morton's doing, especially with his uh, fuel for work. And I think that's a great uh, barometer to, to better understand what are, the, what are the carbohydrate needs of an athlete during different phases of training or competition. So eating, eating sufficient carbohydrate is certainly going to allow you to, to train at a higher level. Um, and so certainly if you prioritize protein at the expense of carbohydrates, um, you have to be prepared for the fact that your training quality might might suffer. And so, um, you know, I just finished uh, teaching um, this these kind of topics in my third year course. And and I think to your point about generalizing versus specifics, I think there's a real value in uh, understanding the N of one. So what what works for you or what works for your athlete and one of the things that that could be an estimate is is if you're if you're tinkering with this with this weight loss and trying to increase the protein a little bit to to, to promote that fat loss, uh, but maintain that lean mass, is uh, keep keep a journal um, and, and understand how much carbohydrate is going in, and then talk to your athlete and see how he feels during training or he or she feels. If if the training suddenly feels harder. It's likely because they're not they're not consuming adequate carbohydrate, and that that might be a purposeful approach vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis improving you know fat metabolism or aerobic adaptations, purposely training with low carbohydrate. But but if the training quality needs to be sustained, then then uh, then that's a great metric to, to to understand whether or not you've you've overshot uh, undershot carbohydrate and perhaps also overshot your protein. You know, we're, 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 I, love, I love having these chats and as much as we're trying to, to talk about science and be sciencey, 
And, um, you know, the podcast is called We Do Science. We still use terms like tinkering. <laughs> <I love Yes. laughs> but that's such an important term you've just used because that is a key issue here is the mistake is someone will take that information from the paper and apply it into practice literally without even considering, you know, when we talk about, you know, an average subject, what does that term even mean? How tall, how big, how heavy? individual into individual variability all that sort of stuff that i've talked a lot about on this with my guest on this on this podcast but the reality is that until the technology arrives and it's definitely not here where you can have a quick scan and it will tell you you know exactly what you need to do you need to tinker with this so yeah. so the the stuff that we're talking about is 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 the starting point and the tinkering is the experimentation preferably with someone who sort of knows what they're doing um, um, is a long range process though, isn't it? I mean, it is. So, so in the theme of tinkering, I mean, are we talking about a day before a week before, or is it likely to be months or years? I mean, you know, we're, it's an impossible question to answer fully, mm -hmm. but, but, but just so people have got some sort of time span scope on this. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you might, you might hit it right the first shot and then you don't have to tinker. But, uh, my, my belief is this is something that, that is accumulated through sometimes years of, of trial and error. Um, certainly if you've, if you've got a big, a big race, um, you know, uh, the next, you know, this weekend or even in a week from now, you probably don't want to tinker too much, especially if it's an important race. But if it if it's a if it's a, um, a a barometer race, you're trying to figure out where you're at in your training, then I would suggest yes, you can start tinkering now. See see how it how it how see how you can come um, uh, how you perform on that day. Um, but it's it's something that often takes, especially if it's related to 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 weight loss or or, or fat loss. Um, that, that, that could take a couple of years because it's, you know, you, you're, you're going to maybe only have, um, you know, a couple, uh, weight cutting cycles in a, in a, in a, a macro cycle of a year. Uh, and so that's two opportunities to see what works for you. And if you strike out on both, then, then you, you have to reset the next year. Uh, so, you know, tinkering, uh, it, it, it could be something that, that you could do um, on the short term, but my view is it's, it's probably something that it's going to take a bit of, bit of time to, sure. to, to get right. And, and I, think, I think using the science to guide you will, will, will get you most of the way there. But for those athletes that are looking to, to squeeze every, every quarter uh, percent out of, out of their performance, then, then those are the ones that, that may not quite be satisfied with that first yeah. iteration and, and then have to or look make small adjustments yeah and i think you guys and by you guys i mean you know those of you that are doing the research and publishing this you're starting to change the language and phraseology of how that information is being translated into recommendations so before it might have been you know everyone needs to consume 10 20 30 40 grams of protein boom that's it or you know um but now the language is starting to talk about you know how how much for example in in grams per kilogram of body weight which i think is something we'll, we'll get into a bit later because i think that's that's important for me as a practitioner i find that that's my starting point is first the contextualization the individualization process is 
is is not to assume that my my athlete is the same as as the average person obviously they're not frequently they're outliers aren't they um oh yes yeah so we're we're talking about athletes athletes are people uh, particularly elite athletes um but an elite athlete you know, doesn't have to be an Olympian. They are still someone who is undertaking a huge amount of training and exercise, a serious athlete, like a Ironman triathlete, for example. And there's a lot of them around. There are thousands and thousands and, and thousands of uh, people getting into ultra endurance. Um, you know, we're talking high levels of, of uh, training on a daily basis, people training multiple times per day with a job in the middle of it. It's kind of crazy, really. Yeah. Um, and what we're trying to do is take advantage of the miraculous fact that muscle is highly plastic um, and it's undergoing a, a constant level of, uh, of change, which we're aiming to manipulate intelligently, hopefully not by overstressing it or understressing it. And we're aiding that process through these things we're now learning in nutrition that affects, you know, the, the, the remodeling process, the, the, the molecular uh, chit chat that's going on within that machinery. Um, I think we should talk about that a little bit in terms of why, why an endurance athlete should be thinking about this. And it's not just about getting bigger muscles or lifting weights in a gym. It's, you know, the, the, the stuff that's happening to the muscles that requires protein to enable those adaptations. So maybe you could give us a quick overview of that. We have done this in other podcasts, but I yep. think it's relevant to our chat today. Sure. Um, so when we look inside the muscle, I, I, not to oversimplify, but I think there's, there's two kind of uh, protein compartments that, that are important for, for an endurance athlete to consider. One, we consider the myofibrillar. So these are all the contractile proteins, your actin myosin. Um, having adequate quantity of those is going to allow you to produce the force that'll propel you through, through your race. And then the mitochondria, which everyone probably knows very well, is the, the energy powerhouse of the cell. So it's going to generate your ATP. And so when an endurance athlete is, is training at a high level, there's it's considerable stress um, placed on the muscle. And, and the muscle is a cell, and the cells, cells don't like stress. And anytime it's stressed, it's going to, it's going to try and uh, uh, recover from that stress and rebound so that it's stronger than it was before. So when that stress um, place is placed on it again, it, it's better able to withstand that stress. And so that's just the principle of periodization of training. Uh, and so uh, when we're when an endurance athlete is is uh, is is training, especially um, with with running, for example, there's there's high forces involved with with uh, with the landing of of, of the foot especially if they're running downhill. And so all these, these high forces, uh, they're, they're instantaneous, but, but they can lead to small amounts of, of muscle damage. And so we get a breakdown in these, in these myofibrillar or these contractile proteins. Um, right there, we have to find a way to, to remove those damaged proteins and replace uh, new functional proteins in their place. And so this is considered what we call protein turnover, the breakdown of old or damaged proteins and then the resynthesis from free amino acids from our diet or of the breakdown of those proteins to rebuild new ones in their place. And so this contractile, the, these myofibrillar proteins are very uh, sensitive to our nutritional environment. And so anytime we eat uh, a meal that contains protein or what the muscle really cares about, 
amino acids, it's an opportunity for, for us to remodel or turn over these, these myofibrillar, these contractile proteins. And so having a, a high quality of, of these contractile proteins is very important for, for muscle function. And so this, this turnover is, is elevated with exercise and we have to find a way to support it. And that's through our dietary protein. Um, there's also the, the energy stress associated with the training and perhaps the accumulation um, of metabolic byproducts such as hydrogen ions that, that can lead to, to, to an acidified environment in the muscle. And that, that can be a stress for, for proteins and can lead to, to damage as well. It can also lead to the stimulus to, to, uh, to remodel the, um, the mitochondrial proteins as well. And so anytime we eat protein, we're providing those, those building blocks to help our muscle uh, recover from and adapt to the stress of exercise. We actually don't see uh, that the, the, the mitochondria are, are sensitive to the nutritional environment. Um, so if we eat a, a protein-containing meal, we don't see that the remodeling of that, that fraction is, is enhanced. And, and I think it's related to the fact that it's so vital for, for cell survival uh, that it's, it's dissociated from the nutrient environment. And so this is a little bit different from what was maybe talked about uh, in the review because research has, has, has changed and we're, we're understanding that perhaps this, 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 uh, this organelle is not as nutrient sensitive as we thought. And, and my belief is that it's because it's so vital for, for cell function. Uh, but, Certainly, anytime we, we stress the muscle, we have to clear out the, the, the damaged proteins and replace new ones, and the dietary amino acids or protein is going to help facilitate that. That was awesome. You made a good point there. You know, the, I used the term body of knowledge earlier. You know, it, despite how relatively new and small sports science, sports nutrition is in the context of science it is amazing how fast it is moving and it is, it, you know, it, it is fair to say that, that, that what we knew only a few years ago is entirely possible that what we will know in a few years from now will quite possibly change, but yeah. we're trying to be evidence-based here. And, and, you know, that's why I, I use terms like quality um, and relevance as it relates to the science. And, you know, we just have to think a bit about whether this stuff's relevant or not, but, um, I think it's worth just quickly delving into that because there are these studies, these emerging studies, but when we talk about, you know, confidence by the researchers to say what they're saying, they're drawing upon different types of techniques. And some of them are doing things like biopsies. Some of them are, you know, doing... Um, possibly controversially still nitrogen balance studies. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff there. Just quickly, since you're doing this stuff, how relevant is that to the body of knowledge where we're at right now? Yeah, uh, so uh, that's a great point. Um, what, what we, the approach that, that we, we um, typically use in our lab at the moment is exploiting um, the use of amino acid tracers. And so these are, sometimes you hear them referred to as stable isotopes. And you can think of them as, as amino acids that are they're typically used to, to build protein, but they're a little bit heavier than those that are naturally found in our bodies. Uh, and so this slight 
increase in, in uh, weight or mass of these amino acids doesn't change how they're used by the body, but it allows us to track where they go. And so if we feed people these stable isotopes, uh, we can take biopsies and measure whether or not it's been incorporated into new functional protein. Um, we can measure whether or not uh, that, that label, for example, a carbon label, ends up in the breath. And if it has, then we know that we've used what we've consumed as a source of energy. And so these studies are very important to, to unlock um, the, 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 the metabolic pathways by which um, exercise increases protein turnover. It allows us to look at whether or not different quantities or types of protein are able to help support this body protein turnover that, that we assume that if you're at a highest rate of turnover or you'll be able to maximize protein synthesis, then that's obviously going to be very important for an athlete looking to, to recover from uh, exercise. There's a, there's a bit of a gap between that, though, and what an athlete's actually worried or interested in is, is performance. Mm. Um, and so we use uh, these acute uh, metabolic studies where we can control very tightly what individuals do and measure their metabolism with these stable isotopes as a way to kind of guide where we might go with a longer term study. And so these are, we consider these kind of proof of principle. And so if 20 grams of protein is better than 10 grams to help the muscle recover, then we know that if we're going to then roll that out into, uh, into the athlete or, or a longer term training study, that, that that will be the starting point for where we might peg our nutrition. Uh, so that's a, that's a great point that, that you raise uh, and something that, that we're trying to, to bridge the gap with a little bit too, uh, in which we're studying the requirements of protein for endurance athletes in these acute day-long settings, and then trying to look at if we manipulate the protein, what happens to performance, at least over a short uh, training program of, of four to five days. Um, and so we, just to comment a little bit on that, what we do see is that um, in our stable isotope studies, uh, our estimate uh, for the requirement of protein was at about 1.8 grams per kilogram. So this is more than twice the current RDA. Um, and, and if we provide athletes with that amount versus um, one that's uh, moderate and suggests to be at the lower range of, for example, the American College of Sports Medicine requirements, 1.2 grams per kilogram, that in just four days, if we keep the carbohydrate content high but manipulate just as protein amount, that the endurance athletes uh, were, were able to, to run a five-kilometer time trial about 16 seconds faster in just four days of training on this higher-protein diet than on this moderate, which would still be considered sufficient protein intake. And so that's a way that we're trying to understand, okay, our, our stable isotope metabolic studies seem to be able to roll out, at least in the short term, to uh, outcomes that might be important for an athlete, such as strength and, and, uh, and, um, uh, and endurance performance. But there still is a bit of a gap for, for those long-term training studies. Yeah, great. Yeah, I just felt that was an important thing we need to keeping everyone's mindset sure. and they're thinking about this stuff. So, so um, I think, you know, look, there's a, there's a, a, a valid and evidence-based argument for making 
protein, um, uh, you know, higher up in the thought process of things to think about for endurance athletes. I think that's quite clear. But we still need to, from a practical perspective, discuss a few things um, which will loosely be in the sort of the total type and timing type matrix. So mm -hmm. I, this is such a difficult conversation to get into, um, but I, I, I'll let you take the burden of responsibility. For this. <laughs> Thank you. But, Appreciate that. But it is important because, as I said, people see these numbers, you know, in articles and, you know, you've used you know, 10, 12 grams, whatever, you know, 20 gram, whatever. Let's just talk about what, what is actually relevant in the real world um, that has, you know, um, a source of, of evidence from the lab to back it up as it relates to the amount um, of protein. And I realize there's a lot of angles there, but just loosely, let's start with, with that point. Um, I, I think some of the, you know, there's some really good research. Um, uh, Louise Burke has, has spearheaded some uh, as well as Luke, uh, Luke Van Loon, looking at, you know, what to, what to endurance athletes habitually consume. And actually what we see is that they're probably consuming sufficient protein as long as they're meeting their energy requirements. Uh, and so I think that that alone, I think, is fairly good evidence that, um, you know, what, what we measure in the lab and seem to be uh, as I ideal is, is actually maybe what athletes are already doing for the most part. And so science can sometimes direct practice or it can sometimes explain why practice works. So um, there's there's that to look at, the fact that, adequate energy intake often will just bring along protein as well, as long as it's a mixed diet. Um, as far as um, uh, protein is concerned, uh, some, some great work out of Holland uh, uh, over a decade ago now showed that uh, um, riders in the Tour de France who have very high energy and energy expenditures, you know, three to 4,000 calories sometimes in a stage, um, naturally self-select a very high protein intake when you normalize it to grams per kilogram body mass. But if you look at the relative energy, uh, it's only about 10 to 15% of energy coming from protein. But because the intakes are so high, then the absolute amount of protein is, is, is probably sufficient or maybe even more than they, they actually need. So I, I think looking at what athletes are already doing is a pretty good barometer for whether or not um it's it, it's it's it has evidence behind it yeah um, certainly if you can look at uh controlled studies over you know a shorter period uh, a couple of weeks where you can manipulate the protein intake and show that you know for example immune function might start to be compromised or mood state becomes worse performance tails off then that that's also a good uh, a barometer for saying well this is this is clearly an insufficient amount of protein yep. uh, and we we don't know what the ideal amount is but we know that it's not this yeah well that's the tinkering isn't it and the yes the, the, you know we i've done loads of stuff uh previous stuff oh, that's not a technical term is it i've done loads of uh, episodes with experts on these topics um um where we're talking about the importance of having methods to assess accurately your 
your your athletes, your clients, um, so that you can gauge where there are and then make some informed, you know, evidence informed decisions going forward. So that's you know body composition, performance metrics, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. and that is an important part of this process of starting off with a number and then um, you know and then and then tinkering based on um, that information. Um, we'll come back to that because I think that's an important important topic um so the, the amount um you've sort of given us given us some good insight there uh, i think a more topical area if anything actually is the type of protein um and there's two angles here by type we could say do we mean plant-based or do we mean animal dairy I, I, there's a lot of people going to be interested in that because there is a huge movement to go down the plant-based pathway. Mm -hmm. If people read the literature, um, you know, what jumps out at them are these terms like, you know, protein quality, protein digestibility. There's various ratings for that. Uh, whether in reality there's a massive difference, particularly that's relevant to endurance athletes is something that I'm going to have you answer. But mm -hmm. also food, supplements, and so on. Um, which is possibly to go back to the previous section is where supplements might play a valid role because you can get a source of protein or amino acids without all the baggage. And by baggage, I mean calories. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where it can be a useful tool in the toolbox as long as you're aware of the strengths and limitations. So let's, let's tackle the first thing then. So in, in the, uh, in the uh, conversation about the type of protein, um, <coughs> animal versus plant. Um, what is your perspective on that? I think, uh, personally, I think both could be equally effective. Um, when, typically, when we talk about protein quality, you, you mentioned a couple of things. How, how easily is the protein digested and therefore the amino acids absorbed? And in what ratio are those amino acids provided? And so what we see is that animal-based uh, such as you know, egg, chicken, uh, beef, dairy, uh, they're, they're considered high quality from the standpoint that they have a nice balance of essential amino acids that, that uh, more closely mimics those which are naturally found in our body. Uh, depending on how the food is cooked, they're generally um, fairly easily digestible. And so those are, those are high quality. Um, but they may not be the best choice for everyone uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And so uh, plant-based proteins, um, sometimes what happens is that they, they come, they're a little bit harder to digest or they might be deficient in, in one or, or, or many in some, some cases uh, essential amino acids. Uh, an example uh, would be you know, rice uh, is deficient a little bit in lysine. Uh, where, where beans might be uh, sufficient in lysine, but low in methionine. Um, and so when, if someone's looking at, at plant-based proteins, um, having complementary protein sources, as an example, rice and beans, uh, can, can get you to, to a protein quality score that's, that's, that's sufficient for, to, to meet a high-quality protein. And so, um, you know, I, I, I talked to my undergraduate class about the idea about there's there's no one diet um there's no there's no in my mind there's no perfect diet there's a number of diets out there that 
Um, someone might choose due to economical, environmental, ethical reasons. And uh, certainly there's a number of examples of, of, uh, of endurance athletes who consume meat who do very well. And a lot of uh, examples of endurance athletes who are vegetarians and in some cases vegans who also do equally well. So um, I think it's important to consider especially when, when I, we're talking about protein, that, that uh, whole foods should be the, the primary vessel of this protein because there's gonna, it's going to come with other essential nutrients. Um, and, and whether it's plant or, or animal-based, uh, it could be a personal choice. What I might say if someone is purely plant-based is that um, generally about a 10% buffer might be considered to overcome some... Uh, uh, slightly uh, deficient protein qualities in some of those sources. So they can, they can, you can, you can make uh, uh, an inferior protein better by complementing, complementing it with another um, inferior protein, or you can just consume a little bit more of that protein source. So yeah. I'm a firm believer that, that a mixed diet is, is just fine. And if people want to go plant versus animal, uh, that's a personal choice. So I think that this conversation becomes I mean, there's two sort of versions of it. If you're not an elite athlete, um, I really don't think, from all the evidence I've seen, I just don't see there's an argument either way, particularly. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, a particularly important thing about evidence-based practice is the individual's personal preferences is an important part of that process. As mm -hmm. it relates to them, either way will basically work. I think where I, I have this as a practitioner working with elite athletes, and I am very mindful of their personal preferences. And in certain mm -hmm. scenarios, it's not just a preference, it's a religious preference or, or whatever. But there are associated, I use the phrase associated baggage. One issue with combining plant sources is, is you're also going to have issues uh, with um, carbohydrate content, but also fiber content. And it's really not about mm -hmm. carbohydrates so much. You can play around with that. The issue, though, is, is, is the fiber content that adds bulk um, mm -hmm. for some athletes who have gastrointestinal issues, particularly endurance, ultra-endurance athletes. This is a higher risk. Mm -hmm. Even with uh, training the gut, there are still some concerns. And I've got a uh, – we've talked about FODMAP before, but I've, we're doing a podcast on FODMAP in the near future. Mm -hmm. um, but that is where things get a little bit more complicated. Um, but mm -hmm. just to bring in the value of supplementation, because supplements can help that situation. And they're not, they're not going to be necessarily dairy-based because that may be off the table for vegans and mm -hmm. your pure plant-based athletes. But what about supplementary plant-based protein supplements? And the term I love to use, I think I heard it first from Lee Breen, actually, was where there are certain ways of rescuing the uh the missing components that you might have from an animal diet like leucine mm -hmm. or whatever but what based on that long bit of spiel for me what, what are your thoughts on that because i know people want to hear that bit yeah so um you know uh plant-based uh protein supplements can can be very high quality and it's and you're right it's through this this, con this combination of different plant-based sources that that allow you to kind of fill in all the gaps of, of any one protein um, so that's certainly an option and, and that's a, that's a personal choice. Um, you know, 
I sometimes get asked, well, which is better, which is more healthful? And, and, I'm, and I don't think the evidence is there for either way. And so that's still default to what's, what's the personal preference? Um, is, is there a role for protein supplementation in athletes? Certainly. Um, it's, it's a very convenient way to get a protein supplement, uh, or protein source, excuse me. Um, and you know, as you mentioned, if it, if it doesn't come with all the extra bulk and fiber, um, it, it's actually a very efficient way to consume protein that, that, uh, that, that it might allow you to, to consume it at different times where it's advantageous. If you're looking to consume something uh, dur- during a run, sometimes there's a bit of evidence that you know, we can replace the, what we'd normally use as a source of fuel from our body by consuming that protein. So you might want to, you could consume a bit of protein dur- during training, uh, a small amount, as long as it's comfortable for your gut. Um, or if someone needs to, to start consuming protein right after they exercise for different reasons, uh, enhance recovery, uh, replenish muscle glycogen, it, that protein has a role there, then uh, supplements can be a convenient way to do that um, and come with a package that allows you to actually consume adequate energy if that's a concern for you as well. So I, I view supplements um, as something that, that – is is convenient for the most part sometimes is necessary but i still take a, a food first approach yeah yeah well m- definitely me too and uh, like i said at the beginning you know that th- this th- these things should be viewed as tools in a toolbox but like any you know um any competent uh engineer or workman or whatever you, you you need to understand what those tools are for, when to use them, when not to use them, the strengths and limitations. And that I fear is an issue out there, particularly, you know, when people start getting excited about supplements, you know, they, they, they're not truly aware of the bigger picture and, you know, everything I just said. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, and also I'd refer listeners, uh, a relatively recent podcast I did with Dr. Ricardo Costa all about sort of endurance, ultra endurance training. And we got into topics like the gut and issues as that relates to the intake of food and supplements. Absolutely fascinating chat. So, mm. so uh, look that one up guys. Um, right. So we've talked about uh, total. We've talked about uh, type. I think that we've adequately covered that timing. Now, when it, when people start thinking about nutrient timing as it relates to body composition, um, you know, that, that's sort of being quashed a bit, I think. You know, it just comes back to the basic concept of energy balance as, as it relates to a day or a whole week as opposed to, you know, timing these things throughout the day. But as it relates to performance and recovery, particularly in elite athletes, timing absolutely um, is relevant um, where where there's evidence for it so in in this we're we're talking uh, about protein obviously and we're talking about protein ingestion before during and after exercise um Mm -hmm. maybe you could give us you know a summary of, of where we're at i know there's issues here because a lot of the the knowledge comes from resistance training studies Mm -hmm. um but in your review for example i know there's been more thought about this since um you are able to intelligently uh you know bridge those gaps there so what 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 should we be thinking about in terms of timing of protein ingestion 
Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, just to take a, take a step back and, and, and the entire 24-hour period, I think what, what we're seeing um, is if, if you're able to space your protein out throughout the day, four or five meals, uh, metabolically, we believe that that is the most efficient way to eat uh, from the standpoint that if you overconsume protein in a single meal, it's not that you're able to um, uh, build more, more or uh, uh, remodel your muscle or your body proteins at a higher rate. Uh, your, your body's going to take what it needs and then the rest, because we can't store protein in our body, it's just going to be used as a source of energy. So certainly spacing protein throughout the, out the day means less is going to be used as a source of energy in any one meal and more is going to be used to help, help your body uh, remodel and recover. As far as timing um, in and around training, um, you know, I, I would default to what are the other goals of the training. And so, for example, if it's to, to facilitate fat oxidation and perhaps uh, an adaptation for mitochondrial biogenesis through the low-carbohydrate availability training, then certainly eating something before is, uh, exercise is probably not something you want to do. Um, but in that scenario, consuming something immediately after exercise is important to help your, your muscle and your body um, recover quickly. So I would always say consume something. Uh, there's, no, there's no magic window, I don't believe, but I think certainly uh, the sooner you can get the protein in, the, the, the quicker your body can start to recover. So within an hour after exercise is something you certainly want to do. Um, the choice of consuming it during uh, exercise is sometimes a bit of a, a preference. Mm. Um, if, if you're going to be consuming carbohydrate-based uh, beverage during exercise with the goal of enhancing um, performance in, a, in a, you know, a training boat that lasts longer than 90 minutes, then certainly including a little bit of protein if your stomach can handle it in that drink uh, seems to have some advantages from the standpoint that your body will use that protein in the drink as opposed to what it has um, in its muscle, for example. And so you're able to, when you finish exercising, be in a better position to start recovering. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that protein can improve performance. And so we're really looking at what role does it play in the recovery and adaptation. And so the, the simplest would be consume something right after exercise and every three to four hours after that, if you can. Um, and then the choice to consume before or after is a, is a, is a, or excuse me, before is, is a, is a preference. Yeah. Um, so I guess one, one area I think that has some interest is the role that protein can have as some sort of support mechanism for carbohydrate intake, mm -hmm. which I think might play a more valid, relevant role in some people um, um tell us tell us about that you know what what, what is mm -hmm. the benefits of protein beyond the whole muscle and recovery thing but actually to the bigger the bigger player potentially for performance which is clearly carbohydrate but protein mm -hmm. might, might might assist that how, how how does that work yeah so certainly uh after exercise um is a great a great uh it's a perfect time to start consuming carbohydrate to, to resynthesize the muscle glycogen and liver glycogen that you burned during training. Um, and so what we see is that if you're able to get uh, upwards of a gram to about 1.2 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body mass per hour, uh, 
that will, will maximize the rate of glycogen resynthesis. However, if you can't meet those targets, including protein in that, in that carbohydrate meal, can actually help facilitate or accelerate the rate of muscle resy uh, glycogen resynthesis. And so, you know, if, if you can look at something that's about a three to one carbohydrate protein ratio, consuming that after exercise will not only help your muscle uh, remodel and recover, but it'll also help facilitate muscle glycogen resynthesis. And this is going to be important for an athlete who might uh, train multiple times in a day and who has to, who might have less than eight hours to recover between those training bouts. Certainly getting something in uh, quickly that's going to maximize glycogen resynthesis is going to be important for ensuring that you're able to compete at a high level uh, within, about 18, within about eight hours after that first bout. If you have a day to recover, 24 hours, then we see that uh, consuming adequate carbohydrate throughout the 24-hour period is going to be more important for glycogen resynthesis than, than the timing per se. But certainly all things being equal, consuming protein with carbohydrate after exercise is going to help facilitate glycogen resynthesis. So you mentioned uh, uh, with athletes training multiple times a day, um, you know, the, the, the concept of concurrent training is an important one, particularly for elite athletes and I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten into this with some previous guests like Lee Hamilton and um, Jackson Fife and, and so on where mm -hmm. they've one way or the other looked at this and Keith Barr when we've been talking about molecular signaling and so on but, but protein um, you know we've not really talked a whole lot about the role that protein plays in that situation what you know why why, uh, why might protein also play a valuable role in in concurrent training? Um, for, really, it comes back to the fact that you're allowing, you're providing the, the, the muscle with the, the building blocks it needs to, to adapt to, to the stress of both exercises. And so it's linked around this idea that we have to maximize the rate of muscle protein synthesis to help our, our, our muscles rebuild and adapt. And so whether you're doing endurance or resistance or both, I think protein is the, the most important macronutrient for supporting that aspect. So I don't think the recommendations need to be overly complicated, but mm. if you do any kind of exercise, you know, consume some protein after that. Yeah. I'm just trying to cover the, uh, there's lots of reasons, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there with an endurance athlete or a coach or whatever is to, you know, is to tick off a, a fairly long mm -hmm. list of reasons why you need to be thinking about this. Yeah. But the one that I like the most actually um, which for me is a particularly strong reason for seriously considering whether you're consuming not just adequate but optimal levels of protein. Um, um, for me, it comes from a conversation I had with Mike Gleason about the immune function. And this is a few years ago now. Um, and a lot of this stuff was kicking off about keto adaptation, fat adaptation, and people are, you know, eating... Um, uh, uh, less and less quantities of carbohydrates and don't worry that's a whole nother chat that I've had with a lot of previous people um, but um, of course protein is also an issue here uh, in, in, in the same way that people might be under consuming carbohydrates for one reason or, or another um, again people who are going down let's say a more extreme approach to their diet that 
um, that they're not necessarily carefully considering the consequences of those extremes. Um, the victim, of course, can also be protein for reasons that you've already explained before. But maybe you could just explain why, 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 you know, why is the immune system a potential sort of innocent bystander here um, and the role that protein has on that? Yes. So you mentioned Mike Gleason and, you know, I would defer to him. He's the expert on this area, but certainly in the reading that I've done, um, you know, during periods of, of overtraining or, or high volume training, uh, consuming adequate protein can help support immune function. And, and I think some of it is linked to uh, the concept that um, immune cells have a very high energy expenditure. And so carbohydrate can help support that. But during periods of stress, too, what we see is that they, they, they also um, like to use um, a, a non-essential, or you can argue now in this situation, a conditionally essential amino acid called glutamine. And so if your diet doesn't consume enough of that, which is part of protein, which may be the indirect reason why protein is important, then, then immune function could, could suffer. And so I've seen examples of, of people um, supplementing their diet with with glutamine during times of of high, of high training and then so there's there's some rationale behind that uh, but certainly you can find uh, glutamine rich sources of protein uh, dairy is one example where uh, consuming adequate quantities of that will will, will provide um, the, the the immune cells with with the support they need to basically do their job and keep you healthy you know a sick athlete can't train and he's probably not going to perform very well either so that's possibly another another angle that the plant-based athlete might want to consider is not just the fact that the, the sort of the quantity and quality of of protein is an issue, but delving deeper into the quality, it's not just things like leucine and so on. Glutamine could be an issue for them, especially those ultra endurance athletes where the gut, you know, can take a serious mm -hmm. hammering. Yeah, um, and that that unveils a whole another conversation which we don't need to get into. But um, I just, you know, this is why I find performance nutrition, sports nutrition, is such a fascinating area because it's it's exploding. You know, you only go back twenty years, and it was there were I would only have been able to do about two or three podcasts because basically it was carbohydrate and <laughs> not yeah. know, protein. It was, you know, there's so many different avenues that we're going down. So. Mm -hmm. In this particular topic, Dan, we've talked about sort of the past and where we're where we've come to to where we're at now with with what we know. But in terms of future perspectives, you know, wh where do you think we're going, and where do you think we sh we need to be going? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Sometimes we don't know where we're going till we get there. Mm. Um, but certainly, I think. Um, a greater awareness for uh, the role that protein can play in, in uh, recovering adaptation endurance athletes is something that's of importance. And I think circling back on some things we talked about earlier, really getting a better handle on, on um, long-term, what we consider long-term at least, you know, three to four month training studies, where you're able to manipulate different variables such as amount, type, timing, to see if that actually does make a difference. And, you know, a difference in the lab might mean we're statistically significant, or a difference in practice could mean that you're half percent faster. And so those studies are hard to do, but they're very valuable. Um, 
And so I think we needed more of those long-term studies. Uh, you, you mentioned it earlier in the, in the podcast, I think, you know, where, where the, the, the blue sky version of sports nutrition is going is, is starting to look at, can, can we match nutrition to someone's genes? Uh, so there's a lot of work in, in genetics and, and epigenetics looking at, um, you know, whether or not um, different uh, DNA are, 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 are acetylated or methylated to, can impact how they're expressed, um, the different gene variants you might have. Understanding, can we take, take a cheek swab, for example, look at our DNA or uh, genetic variations or polymorphisms and see, all right, you are going to respond best on a plant-based diet, or you can get away with consuming fewer, fewer amino acids in your diet. I mean, that's, that's the gold standard. That's not the gold standard. That's, that's, that's the big vision of where we're going. So yeah. in addition to these longer term studies, perhaps starting to look at um, how can we explain the normal variability we see in studies as far as responders and non-responders are concerned. Yeah. Linked to something that they're, they're doing or not doing is it, or is the fact that we're not actually matching nutrition to their genes. And so I think that becomes an issue when you're talking about elite athletes looking for everything they can get. Yeah. Um, but maybe not so much, uh, someone who just wants to be active like myself. Um, don't think I need to act match my nutrition to what I'm doing. I just need to do more of what I'm not doing. That's, that's perfectly said, Dan. And that's why I'm all about context. I'm all about relevance. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you mentioned something just now, which definitely isn't a conversation, uh, that we, uh, cause it'll be ours is, is what actually is a responder and non-responder anyway. Yes. Fascinating conversation. Yes. And I've got an upcoming, uh, uh, podcast, uh, all about the whole genetic thing, uh, that, yeah, it's fascinating. But again, I, for me, from what I've seen, that's a conversation which largely is about you know, what we think we know, but we don't quite yet know, you know, it's definitely, yeah. I, I can't wait till we get there. I just don't think we're quite there yet. Um, but we'll see, we'll see what happens in those, in, in, in a lot of that research. Um, but boy, it's exciting times for sure. I think both for <laughs> you as researchers and for us as, as uh, practitioners. And, you know, I, I, I think for me, part of this future journey, there needs to be a lot more uh, of a relationship between practitioners and researchers, which we are starting to see. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that there might be a researcher listening to this who's probably suddenly got an idea for their PhD study or something, and that would be awesome. Um, so look, I, uh, we've, been, we've been hammering away at this now uh, for quite some time. I, I, I think we should bring this to a close with, if you could, if you feel you can do this, it's sort of putting you on the spot here, Dan. But, mm. but, we need to have some sort of conclusion or summary to this conversation um, just to end this, this piece. You know, if you're, you know, you, you, you're asked to, to walk into a classroom with your, you know, sports nutrition or sports science grads or whatever. Um, and, you know, they just said, right, you've only got, you know, a few minutes to, to say your piece. You know, w what would you say as it relates to the importance and role of, of protein for endurance athletes by, by way of summing up. So are you asking me to do a verbal tweet here? Yeah, do it. There's... Do a verbal tweet. Oh, it's, it's difficult. No, I'm not on Twitter. Are you dad? I'm not. So yeah, you see, this is a I think I'm on there, but I may, I'm, I'm definitely not active. Yeah. Um, 
verbal yeah, tweet. I think you know, for for all the reasons we spoke about, you know, protein is is really the macronutrient that's going to allow you to recover from and adapt to the stress of exercise. And it's from the standpoint that we're providing the building blocks of of protein. As far as recommendations, I, I, I try and think about how can I make this. What's the simplest way that you know we can describe this? And we spent an hour, almost an hour and a half, talking about the nuance of it. But if it's to look at a, a meal protein intake, and so we didn't talk necessarily about that too much. But if we're looking at an opportunity to consume four or five meals in a day, if you can target about 0.3 to 0.4 at the most grams of protein per kilogram body mass spread that out throughout the day that'll be a great starting point to support your training um your training goals um and allow you to that's maybe the starting point of where you start tinkering from no that's fantastic listen dan you've been awesome i mean you know it always blows me away that we can spend an hour hour and a half talking about these sorts of things which is well beyond a tweetable comment mm-hmm. um but you know it is an important conversation we've had you know, you're one of the guy, one of the top guys up there involved in this area of research. So it's always a privilege and an honor to talk to the people that are actually doing the research, the quality research. Um, if people, well, I will point them towards uh, your various studies that are relevant to this conversation. Um, you're not on Twitter, as you, you've just mentioned, um, but I'm assuming you're, I know you're on ResearchGate, so I know people can find you on there. I will, I will link to that. Uh, and of course, at the University of Toronto, you're involved uh, in teaching and in research, aren't you? So for folks who are in that neck of the woods, go study yep. at the University of, of Toronto. Um, always, look, always looking for great students. Yeah, actually, no, you'd go, I've spoken, well, I mean, we've had in Canada generally, obviously, Stu Phillips, um, uh, I've had uh, uh, numerous uh, uh, visits from him on this uh, on this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a bit of a powerhouse you guys have got going in that part of the world. So that's pretty cool. So listen, that brings us to the end of this conversation. Um, once again, thank you very much for your time. I deeply appreciate it. That um, is as much as we. I mean, this is pretty much maxing out the length of time we ever have on this podcast. That shows you how mm-hmm. interesting this topic is. For folks that are interested in all the previous podcasts, just go to uh, either our website, which of course has now changed. This is the IOPN, the Institute of Performance Nutrition, abbreviated the IOPN, or directly to wedoscience.com for the podcast specifically. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing another episode back to you very, very soon.